Welcome to Out of the Woods, the Threat Hunting Podcast. Hey everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Out of the Woods Threat Hunting Podcast. Um, this is Scott Poley, and today I have a special edition where we're going to be talking to... I'm Nathan Wensler, the Chief Security Strategist at Tenable. All right, very nice. And so with that, one of the things I like to understand from the guests we interview and talk to is, um, how did you end up where you're at today? What are some of the milestones that got you where you're at as far as uh, where you enjoy, what you're passionate about, what you solve? Sure. I kind of a kind of an oddball career, honestly. I, I started my career backwards in the sense that I began in government. Okay. So I spent about 15 years as an analyst uh, working in various state, local, and federal government agencies. You know, at the time where security didn't really exist, we were yeah. we were the IT department, and we just kind of tried to do the right thing at the time, things. and that's what we did. But that's really where I started my career, and I built security programs in a lot of ways from scratch uh, with these organizations. They had nothing. They didn't know what to do. Very cool. So it was a lot of, um, you know, on-the-job training like a lot of us had. But uh, did that for about 15 years. I moved into the private sector where I became a CISO for a number of smaller companies, tech and financial services and a few others. Did that for several years and then moved into management consulting uh, where I really advised boards and C-suite executives on trying to figure out sort of why their programs didn't work. Okay, was really the kind of the big thing. And because my background was both technical and management, I could interview everyone top to bottom right. and really build out the whole thing. So it was kind of an interesting career path for me when I finally came to Tenable because Tenable approached me and said, you know, listen, we really want someone who has done the work, who understands technology, right. who has also has management background, has been a CISO, but we also need somebody who can deal with communication because we want you to be able to talk to all the levels and whatnot. So it's an unusual combination of things in the security industry. Most people either stay very technical mm -hmm. and they love to threat hunt and reverse yeah. engineer malware. A lot of people get into management and they stay there and they're great at that, but they've lost their technical skills or they're not really good at the communications piece. And then you have, let's be frank, that whole group of sort of evangelist type people that just read marketing material over and over again. They don't, and they don't have the history or the credibility mm -hmm in their background to really back it up. And I've been very, very fortunate in my career that I had this kind of odd mix of all three. And so today that's what I get to do with Tenable. It's a kind of an advisory CISO role. I spent a lot of time talking with customers and prospects and just coming to events and sharing what I've seen as best practices around how to communicate with uh, different levels of the organization, how to talk about risk, how to better identify what's really problematic in your organization, I guess prioritization, if we want to yeah, talk about yeah. that. But a lot of the, the, the things that sometimes fall through the cracks with organizations where you have highly technical people who don't think about the business side, you have the business side who don't understand the technical side. And I kind of try to fill that gap in there of, of, you know, we have to be able to talk to each other. It's the only way we're going to move the needle on these things and actually address the risk and do, do something good. So when you're engaged, are you being engaged by both sides of the table or is it usually most of the management that kind of comes to you and kind of helps try to facilitate the management to upper management? That's a really, really good question. It almost always starts with uh, either the top, the upper management okay. folks who are saying, we're not getting what we need. 
from our teams and we don't understand why. Okay. Or it is somebody from sort of middle management saying, I'm, I keep telling them <laughs> metrics and they don't understand what I'm talking about. So I usually get start there. But inevitably, it, the technical people get involved. Whether they think they're involved or not, yeah. they are. <laughs> and it's a it's an object lesson, I think, for anybody who's in the, the, the really hardcore technical security space. You get your head down, you're, you're working really hard on your current project, but mm. everything you're doing affects yeah. the profile of the business, everything above you. And you may not understand that, and, that, and that's okay. But when you sit down with a group of engineers and say, hey, listen, I know the boss keeps asking you for all those weekly reports, which you hate. Yeah. Let's talk about why we need to do it and how do we make it easier for you? Mm -hmm. Because you can't just throw that stuff away. But aligning those technical folks up to the middle folks, up to the upper folks, it's it's a really, really key problem. And no one generally does it very well. Right. But everybody recognizes they have the problem. So, yeah, I start with management and they usually think it's just amongst themselves. But I bring the technical people in too because they're absolutely part of the solution. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and then you get everybody a little better aligned and you go from there. So I, I end up with everybody involved, um, which can make for a, a pretty interesting, uh, chaotic sort of time. I can only imagine... <laughs> So like when you're when you're engaging these people, what are some of the common problems you see with either the prospects you're trying to like bring in or even customers you currently have if you're engaged in those conversations that you would say is consistent? From a communication standpoint? Um, yeah, when you talk for the communication or just in general, mm. um, what do you think is more prominent? Well, I, I think I'll take it in two parts because they're, they're somewhat related. I think in... The shortest of terms, the, the biggest technical problem I see right now is prioritization. Okay. People just don't know where to start. And, and part of that is just the technology landscape is so massive now. You think they try to run too fast before they kind of walk into it? To some extent, okay. but I, I think the, the bigger problem actually is people fall back on what they're familiar with. Uh, yeah, I can see that. So if you are an old school Windows admin and you, so you know patching really well and CIS benchmarks and you know how to harden a windows box and now all of a sudden you're in a decision making role but your environment is windows boxes linux networking equipment cloud virtualization platforms applications code bases you got all this stuff right and all of those things have different types of weaknesses different types of vulnerabilities we're going to call them broadly using that term broadly right. so now you're stuck going well, wait do i do i harden my aws environment do i fix the sql injection problem do i patch these boxes which one do i do what do i do first well i'll just patch these boxes because that's what i know and that might not be the right answer right. it might be that aws environment that's that your business runs on right and that we needed to do that so i think answering the question of where do you start first is the biggest challenge that i hear from people and they don't always phrase it that way right but that's ultimately what they're trying to do i have too much data i don't know how to make sense of it because you don't know where to start. You don't know how to, where to start first. Right. I have all these different tools. They all give me different outputs. And then none of them report the metric the same way. Right. Well, what you're saying is you don't know how to take a, a critical finding here against a CVSS 9.2. Well, critical versus 9.2. They, they, yeah. How do you relate them? Right. Everybody's kind of struggling with prioritization because what we're just trying to do is figure out where to start. Um, I think that's the biggest thing I see with technical folks. We're at a time right now where the tools are good. Mm -hmm. you know, there, there's great tooling out there to automate stuff and do assessment work and put in really good security controls. 
But if you don't know which ones you need and if you don't know which ones to focus on, how, how can you implement them well and how do you get good value out of that? So that's, yeah. again, that question of where do I start? Uh, and that's what everyone seems to be struggling with. And I right feel now. like, like you said, you, the tools are very good. And I think one of the challenges I see a lot of people when they implement tooling is there's a lot of valuable data tools generate that they don't use, right? Hundred um, percent. And so I, I completely agree with that. And and as you were talking through the prioritization, and since you know you say you work for Tenable, I'm assuming there's some sort of risk translation you do for these people to create that prioritization. Um, can you walk through kind of your methodology on how you try to risk rate things in a general term or, or however you want to present it? Sure. Um, well, I, I, I'll say this really quickly. I mean, the irony about the question you're asking is that I've spent a lot of my career when I was a CISO doing this manually. Right. Uh, I mean, most of us who've been in security, we're all Excel masters, right? We, we know pivot tables. Yeah. <laughs> I, I actually have a talk where I, I, I asked the audience it's a joke question, right? You're like, what is the most widely used security tool on the planet? And you always get like Microsoft Defender. Like, no, it's Excel. Excel then, is Google second. By far, yeah, right. <laughs> uh, so look, we all have our systems for doing that. And I've had my systems. Um, I, it's funny, when I came to work at Tenable and I started to see some of the ways that they're doing solving this, this exact problem, mm-hmm. I remember sitting down with our head of product management. And he showed me this thing one day. He said, hey, I want to show you this new scoring thing. We're going to do relativity between different findings. We actually have a way mathematically to do it. And I said, oh, let me see what you're doing. And I took one look at it. And I swore at him a lot because I was like, this is what I needed eight years ago when I was doing it manually. Why didn't you have it back then? And I think it's a testament to the industry starting to understand how important this particular problem is. And they're, they're building solutions out for that. So the, um, you know, we look at it at Tenable, if I may. Yeah, yeah go for it. Uh, you know, we look at this from a, a two, two-pronged approach. And it's simple. It's obvious, right? We start with a technical risk rating. Mm-hmm. Right? So we call this VPR, Vulnerability Priority Rating. Okay. But it's a threat intel back. We have all these, you know, dozen different threat intel fiends that we have. Our own team. We have a, a research team, like 150 people to dedicate it. So this is all they do is threat hunt and do this. All right. We bring all this data together, and it's a dynamic score, which can throw some people off because they're used to CVSS. Yeah, yeah. But it's a dynamic score that represents the technical level of risk that a finding, whatever it is, presents to the asset in question. So if it's a missing patch, obviously we're going to take things into account like CVSS, but we're looking at, are there exploit kits in the wild? Do we see criminal groups starting to take activity on it? Are Are there dark web you know, things being sold and, you know, you know, you look at all this kind of stuff, you say, yeah, we're seeing activity on it. This is now becoming more of a risk that the, the number starts to go up right. because there's more activity. Likewise, it'll go down if there's less. Uh, we factor that in though for anything. That could be a cloud misconfiguration. That could be a, a, a credential in Active Directory that's been given too much rights. We look at using the relevant threat criteria. We say, hey, we know that this is a problem. We know that these kinds of credentials when they're misconfigured get exploited in these ways. We know that these criminal groups do that. So we assign that same score, even though it's calculated a little bit different, right. um, to that finding. And what we've done then is you can you have a relative risk rating for technical problems, mm-hmm. no matter what the finding is. So I literally can, to my earlier example, instead of saying critical versus 9.2, I can actually say, you know, 123 against 292. You can stack them better, right? So, yeah, yeah. 292 is worse. Doesn't right. matter what the finding is. This is going to be more of a technical risk. So we do the technical risk score that way. 
And then we take into a second score, which is the business impact. Uh, if you're not taking into the business in account, you're doing it wrong, frankly. So we have a mechanism there as well to say, hey, is this thing a really critical asset? Is it run critical things? Is it a crown jewel? Is this in your lab and you don't care about it? How do you look at this from the business perspective? Take those two things together, technical risk, business impact. That gives us a way of saying how much risk does this particular finding contribute to the organization? And that's where you start to be able to make some of those decisions because if you can do that across all the technology types, then you can start to answer questions like, hey, what do you care about? My These sets of containers that someone just spun up in AWS are super critical to our business and have major technical flaws. They are contributing 3.7% of the risk to our whole environment. Right. We probably should start there today, right? Over the AD stuff, over the Windows patches, over whatever else. So um, for me, that's uh, it's the same kind of stuff I did before Temple was doing it, frankly, which is, you know, have some kind of contextual understanding of the technical risk. So right. threat intel is so key in that. Right. Pair it with the business impact. You cannot just look at the technical risk by itself. It has to be done with the business. Put those things together however you want to do that so that you have a sort of a weighted understanding of if this thing gets compromised, how bad is it for my business? Right. That's the question we want to answer. Um, and I do think more, more organizations are going down that approach. I mean, we've seen more and more people moving away from CBSS as an example because it is static and it doesn't really yeah. answer the question. And I don't get an idea of, well, sure, it's a 9.2 in CVSS, but is it really being exploited today? Do I have to drop everything right now to fix it? So maybe, maybe not. Curious on your thoughts. So, uh, you know, you're probably familiar with the pwn to own competitions, right? Sure. And, you know, a lot of times they're not using the most critical things to break into everything, right? right. They're, they're stacking lows and mediums and figuring out how to, you know, use them intricately together. Yeah. Um, so how... When you talk about your process, does it account for like those lower scorings and things when you talk about that technical analysis? Yeah. I mean, so for, again, for our purposes, we look at that from what's the potential for harm. Okay. So if we know that that thing that CVSS has said is a 5.1, and so everybody on the planet who uses CVSS is going to ignore that. Let's be real. Right. They will ignore yeah. that. Right? It's not it's just the only thing at the top. Yeah. yeah. Your PCI required, you're going to do seven and higher just because you have to, and then anything behind, below yeah. that. I have no time, right? So, okay, so it's off your radar. But we're going to look at that and say, but we know we're seeing groups exploiting it live in the wild. We know that we see people that built exploit kits on that thing. We know it's, we also know that that vulnerability is on a piece of software that's widely used, as another example. Right. So we're, we're going to take our own thing and it's going to ramp up to an eight, to a nine, to a 10, because we know that the potential for harm is people way higher yeah. right now than yeah. whatever CBSS said. So we do, we do take those things into account. Uh, and because we're doing this dynamically all the time, if we see changes, we can account for that as well. So that's one of the, when you see it, it's, you know, it's funny you say about Pono, but uh, you know, Black Hat every year, DEF CON, yeah, same kind of thing, right? Yeah. You could just watch our scoring on some things go ramping up during the days of those events. Cause you know, like people are playing with new vulnerabilities. Like, yep, yep we're seeing activity. <laughs> and so you start to see the numbers ramp up because we see that people are doing more of it. It's, um... I, I think it's becoming a more and more of a, a necessity for a lot of folks to to take that kind of dynamic approach to it because we know we can't fix everything. You can't boil the ocean. There's just no way you're going to do it all. So you have to get more realistic about how you prioritize that stuff. And one of the ways you're going to do that is 
what's really being targeted right now. Right, the interest level I think is key, right? Yeah. Um, that's something we used to always look at and we used like social media feeds, the dark web stuff, right? And we would always try to evaluate, okay, well, there's this chatter in general, at least someone's paying attention to it, right? So already that should, that should make you pay more attention to it as well. Yeah. Um, and Absolutely. so that makes a lot of sense. The, the other question, uh, you know, when you talked about the business impact side, mm. um, you know, one of the things we used to always go through um, when I used to do sock management and sock based stuff, um, and working with the team that did the vulnerability management was, you know, we always did our internal assessments, right, and go to that thing. And that was kind of calculating the same stuff. And, we, you know, one of them was like the level of effort, right, was a big thing. Sure. And then we talked about, you know, what's the exposure based on, like, what's in front of it, where does it sit, how isolated is it, how many people are using it, that kind of stuff. So I was kind of curious from a, from a data point perspective when you were looking at business impact um, from your kind of process, what are some of the key data points that you think are really impactful or interesting from your perspective? So obviously this is going to vary a lot based on your business. It is. Yep. Uh, so there, there is no single answer to this question. And, and anyone listening to this right now, don't go back to your boss and be like, oh, I heard this guy say this is the metric. We have to change everything to that. Like, no, use yeah. the one that, that works for you. But uh, I think it's kind of two different ways you look at the business impact. And the way you just described I chuckle a little bit, and I don't mean that this is no, as a disparagement, but it's it's such an engineer's approach oh, yeah. to business impact because what you're looking at really is is the infrastructure business impact, right? How much workload is on this system? Well, that's number of users, and that's that's connections inbound, and so we're saying if that system goes down, how much essentially infrastructure does it does it really impact so much business process? So that's and that's a good thing to understand because it obviously can take down the business that way, right. but it is still a very much a technical focused mm-hmm. kind of set of metrics. So that is a, that is a good approach if you're trying to manage that part of it. I am a big fan of you know looking at monetary assessment uh, or alignment, I should say, with the thing, but you have to be really careful about how you do that. And this is another one of those places where the technical people and the business people do not look at this problem the same way. Yeah. So for my, my purposes, the way I've, I've had a lot of success with this in, in, in my career, and in fact, I'll, I'll tell you it this way. I, I always start with a three-step exercise with any organization that I work with. Uh, first time I come in, I will go and find first the longest serving sysadmin or technical engineer in the company. The one's been there like 15 years the one that sits in the corner of the cubicle farm that no one ever lets them out of there. They're not invited to meetings anymore because usually someone comes out of it crying or quits <laughs> or, you know, the person I'm talking about, yeah, right? Yeah, some, of you, some of your listeners are probably that person. But you go to that person first and you say, hey, you know this organization better than anybody else. From a technology standpoint, what is the most critical asset we have? And the cool thing about asking that person that question is they will have an answer. They know. Oh, it's this database server right here. It runs our critical business application. If that server goes down, the whole thing goes down. And, uh, and they'll probably give you their life story about how they're the only one that keeps it running. But, but, but good. Okay, so there's a database server. That's a critical asset. Great. And that's how engineers think of it. We think of an asset as the server, and that's the critical thing. Now, second step, I go with the CFO. And I sit down with the CFO, and I say, hey, I know you're not a technology expert, but you know our company works with technology. From a technology standpoint, that's the same question. From a technology standpoint, what is the most critical asset in our company? And the CFO is going to give you an answer like, well, you know, it's our, let's say we're a retail company, like 
it's our e-commerce website because that's where all the money is generated. If the e-commerce website goes down, then we don't make any more money. Well, that's a pretty good answer too, right? That that yeah, you don't you don't want to lose money. Right. So the third step of the process, though, is you go back to the engineer and you tell them what the CFO said. Because when you tell that engineer, that particular engineer, hey, you know, I was talking to the CFO and they actually said the most critical asset was in fact the website and not that database server. Oh my God, the tirade you're going to hear <laughs> from that engineer. What is that CFO talking about? That's, that website's made up of 200 different servers and 14 database servers and 12 load balancers and 15 web applications. And they're going to list off all the tech assets that make up the website. Mm -hmm. And now, my friends, you have alignment. Because when the business is looking at the asset, the asset, they're looking at the website. And if I ask the CFO, how much money per month do we make on that website? Well, we make $20 a month, $20 million a month of revenue. Perfect. And when that engineer rattles off in, in anger about how stupid the CFO is, okay, so we've got 500 IT assets that make up that website. Great. But if any one of those 500 assets gets compromised, it can impact $20 million a month of revenue. So do I really need to get down to the individual asset and try to assign it an impact value or a yeah. dollar value or whatever else? No. And I watch so many organizations try that exercise. The yeah. IT people, they're like, server's an asset? How much money does this server impact? Doesn't matter. Well, but, but, but it's an asset. I know. Step out of your technical mind for a moment. The real asset in question here is the website. And so if we can just say, yeah, yes, if any one of these 500 things is compromised, we can impact $20 million of revenue. Now I've tied a dollar value yeah. metric to it. I have a business impact metric to it. I can actually take those whole, all 500 things together if I want, or I could break them out and just say, yeah, these are all tens in my right. one to 10 scale. Because yeah. we know that they're, each and every one of them can impact $20 million of revenue per month. So yeah, we prioritize on these things. We we protect these things better. We monitor them harder. Whatever you gotta do. Um, but that for me has always been a really, really successful way of doing the business impact part is to not get down to the micro level with it. Keep up at a more macro level of the asset base, but align it to what the, the business will tell you is important. And they'll tell you, they know. They know where their money is. Uh, and this works for government too. I wanna, I wanna make that clear because I hear this a long time. Yeah. Well, Government doesn't make, you know, revenue, but no, you're responsible for budgets and you have to not be negligent with taxpayer funding. So you have areas that are very, very valuable in the services or the mission that you are deploying to citizens or your military to the, to the theater that you're in. Um, there's still a monetary value associated with it, even though you're not trying to make a profit. So the same metrics can be used even in the public sector, because we're talking about good stewardship of, ta of taxpayer dollars. Yes. So I can still do the same exercise and say, listen, we have a, you know, an internal application that, or not even that, it's the IRS website that services all of the tax company. Okay, well, how many assets are involved in the IRS website? Well, a lot. Great. And how much money are we transacting through that site and helping the government get from taxes and helping people? Oh, billions, right? Well, there's your answer. So stepping out of that, that, that micro is the key it, for me about aligning business impact because then... You're already talking the language the business is going to understand really well. And you're doing the translation work so that the technical folks understand all of the individual tinier assets, how they impact right. the bigger picture. And so now we become sort of the risk translator between the two. 
Uh, and neither side needs to really know the other. Like I would never go to the board and show them the list of 500 assets in that original example. Um, they don't need to know that. I just, but when I do need help, I'm going to tell them, say, hey, listen, the website. They understand. We, that. we yeah. see activity approaching the website that is bad. I need this $100,000 worth of new equipment that will solve this particular problem. Right. They'll be on board. If you, if you laid it out right, they're going to be on board with that. It's way easier to get budgetary buy-in. It's way easier to get support as a CISO from the board of those kinds of things when you stay out of the micro with them. Uh, and then you're, you've got the IT bill way better aligned with them as well. So it's just it's a much better way to, to do that. Well, one of the things I liked what you described there was, you know, a lot of technical folks when they're trying to solve problems and they create processes, SOPs or whatever, they're very specific and very niche to something that's like right tangibly in front of them, right? It, and, and when you describe that conversation as you kind of did that back and forth, you know, you're really spelling out the strategy. And I think it's, you get way better processes when you can write processes to a strategy than trying to come up with the processes first because you're trying to predict what you think the strategy is and the strategy is not very specific because it's kind of an overarching, this is what we care about. Sure. Which is we have a specific process that makes this much money. How are we going to keep it safe? What are we going to do when we have problems that come up? How are we going to handle them? And I feel like that's more tangible and you get better results, right? Agreed. Hands down. One of the things, so, you know, we've talked a little bit about communication and communication is such a critical part of success for security teams today. If you're not communicating yeah. well, you yeah. will fail. And one of the things that I love about what you're saying here is because, you know, you're, you're, you're talking about stepping back. Right. Right. And technical people are comfortable with that. We like to be very detail oriented. Right. But not everybody knows our details. Not everybody understands what we do. And that's okay. But what we miss sometimes about just sort of the way human psychology works is that when you when you talk about a big picture concept that's a little more, let's call it vague, yeah. the person who's listening to you will fill in the gaps for themselves. So one of my favorite examples is, is actually in marketing, which, boy, none of you tune out yet. Trust me, there's a reason I said that. Marketing security, I know, I know, I know. Um, but think about Nike for a second. Nike slogan, just do it. Right. It's about as vague as it gets. But every single person who's a Nike fan, when they hear that slogan, they think of something else that's specific to them. Just do it. Well, if I'm an athlete, just do it means I'm going to do my thing. I'm going to get out there on the field and I'm going to do I'm going to do it. I'm going to execute, I'm going to score points, I'm going to do the thing for my team. Right. right. But if you're a fan, if you're just some armchair jockey who's at home, just do it means I'm going to I'm going to support my guys. I'm going to wear the thing. I'm going to support them. Yeah, they know they're not executing on the field, but their it yeah. is the support of their Very team to be a fan, right? And so they yeah. fill in the gap for what they want to do and how they relate to the term just do it. Now, I say all that because when you talk strategy at a security level, we're really talking about the same kind of thing. So one of the things that I used to say to people um, – to like, well, my CFO is a good example. I sat down with my CFO early on in my in my time at my first company. And I said, hi, nice to meet you. I'm your new CISO, all this good stuff. I said, I just wanted to, to introduce myself because uh, I know you and I are going to be working together a lot because you and I are in the same line of work. And he looked at me like I was insane. Because he's, he's seeing me as like, you know, hacker, hoodie wearing, right. you know, Cheetos and Mountain Dew munching dude. And he's like, yeah, I don't know anything about technology. I can barely log into my laptop. What do you mean we're in the same line of work? And I go, oh, oh I'm sorry. I, I was under the impression that you were our financial risk manager, that you 
were the steward of ensuring that the company's financial well-being is sound, that we don't take losses from bad investments or from legal filings or from damages. Isn't that what you do as CFOs to make sure? And then he goes, well, yeah. Like, yeah, me too. As CISO, that's what I do too. I'm just a different technology standpoint. And it was interesting because when, we, when we'd have conversations after that, he, he got it a little bit. He was like, so you're in risk management. Yes, that's what I do. I'm in risk management. And he'd say, well, does that mean legal risk? He's filling in the blanks. Yeah. I didn't say cyber risk management. I just said risk management. And I would say, yeah, absolutely. I can help you with, I can advise you about privacy regulations and, you know, if we're compliance with SOX or HIPAA or whatever we're doing, uh, for sure. That's absolutely something I can help with. Oh, okay. So... Having strategies that are a little more broad about this, uh, and however you phrase it for your company, however you want to do it, it means that you're going to get people who fill in the blanks for themselves, and they'll come to you and say, listen, I know we're looking at the big picture of this thing, but does, does it mean you can help me with the web applications? Yeah, of course we can. That's what we're, what we're absolutely here to do. You're right. Good job. Yes, we can help you with that. And the next person comes up and says, well, what about our devs? Like, is that something you... Of course, there's risk in, in the development. Let's go help you with that. When you when you do that kind of vagueness and you let people fill in the blanks for the thing they're interested in, they'll come to you. You don't have to fight and right. force the training on them and have to like, ram it down their throats. And nobody likes that. They're going to come to you and say, hey, I was kind of interested because I was thinking and I wasn't sure if what you meant was this. Now you've got them. Now you've got them in a place where they're ready to converse. You know what they want to talk about. You've got better communication because they're interested. So they're more receptive to hearing you, which means you can talk about the strategy. You can talk about how you're going to execute in, in a whole different way versus a group of people who are like, yeah, the security guys are talking again. Yeah, I get it. You want me to patch my box? Okay. Um, there's a lot of power in stepping away from the details sometimes. And I think that's a, it's a tactic that a lot of folks, especially as you start to get into management in, in any way, shape or form, it really becomes a, a, an effective tool to use it the right way. So, yeah, don't be afraid to be a little vague sometimes. It might feel kind of weird for us when we want yeah. all the details, but give people a chance. You're, you're giving them an opportunity to participate in the process, and that's huge. And also, like, I mean, in a way, being vague, you're also creating some ownership, not just you're not owning everything yourself, right? Correct. You're kind of passing that on and making people kind of play their part, um, which I think is very valuable. It's not one directional. Right. It is true partnership in the, in the thing. And even just asking the question, even when they come up to you just to ask for clarity, they are now engaged in the process. And that's far more than we usually get with security awareness training or the email we send out with, here's the new policy. Or just, that's just a one-sided communication. Right. If you can get them to the table in any way, shape, or form, yes, now you have participation it changes the whole dynamic of how you do what you do for your security program. It's huge. And so I want to ask one final question, which might lead you into some other things. And, <laughs> um, and it's really just, uh, you know, based on what you do currently, um, a, success, a success story, if I can get it out correctly. Sure. Um, one that's really interesting and intriguing to you where you felt like, you know, where things were, where things ended up, um, and how it kind of got there um, that you can talk to. We have successes in security. It must happen, right? Obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I could talk. I, I have to be careful a little bit because obviously some of the things I can't give a lot of details right. about. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I think one of the important parts for me that I've seen a couple of companies I've talked to in the last probably 12, 18 months or so 
Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back to the prioritization thing because I think that's been, it still really is the, the kind of a core problem. But, key. you know, you sit down and you talk with folks about the problem at hand and, and we, and even in my role at Tenable, I'm, we try to solve this problem too. But, uh, I, you know, talking with someone who says, listen, I might, I die, everything's out of control. I have all these different data sets. I've got all these different decisions that I'm trying to make. I'm trying to figure out where to start. And, uh, and you know, I asked, I asked this one CISO one time, I said, well, why, why are you trying to do it all? And I felt like this is an important question because I don't think we ask ourselves <laughs> is enough. Yeah, we're really good at taking things off. Yeah. And I, you know, 25 years ago, I mean, I had a data center of, you know, 1,500, 2,000 servers. And I thought, yeah, I could probably, I could probably get my arms around all of right. that. Well, guess what, folks? You don't have a single data center anymore. It is insane how spread out everything is. So boiling the ocean isn't real. It wasn't real 25 years yeah. ago. We thought it was, right. but we wasn't. Right. It is undeniable at this point in time. So I asked, like, why are you trying to do it all? And we walked through that process of just like, what's the logic of trying to do everything, of trying to patch to 100% or trying to drop to zero code flaws or trying to 100% CIS compliance on every piece of technology that you have. Right. And you start to ask that question and boy, it's funny when people walk through the, the answers, it starts with the, well, I'm trying to do a good job and well, I'm trying to do the right thing. And what? Okay, we all are doing that part though. But why are you really? Why is the decision to do that? What What does that help your business? Because what it's done is paralyze you, right? So you're getting none of it done. Uh, and that's an important exercise. So when you're walking through with people and and you're breaking that out, like let's look at the CIS benchmark. Why did you pick the CIS benchmark for this? Well, because it's a standard. But is it your standard? Is it right for you? Is this the right thing? Well, not really, because it's really hard. And we have this one application that can never be compliant. Okay, so drop those controls. Let's talk about what's right for you. Right. And, and you start to, to, it's not about shortcutting anything, but it's about being reasonable in terms of what's the risk tolerance for your organization? What are you most concerned about protecting? And what's the best decision for you to protect those assets? Because how you protect it is not going to be the same way that your competitor protects their stuff or anyone else in your vertical protects, they're going to do it differently. Right. So let's stop trying to just do the generic thing. Let's do the thing that works for you. And and walking them through that exercise was big because they what they found would happen is just in basic like SLA compliance. When we tried to patch everything, we were floating at 60, 65% compliance in one of these organizations. And when you talk, you talk to the admins and find out the reason they weren't patching was, I got too much to do. Oh, well, what if I gave you less to do? What if I gave you 10, like the top 10 patches? Can you just deploy those 10? Oh, yeah, 10 pretty easy. I can do that. Just talking them through the why are you trying to do it all? Yeah. And we hit each little process and said, let's narrow this down, narrow this one down, narrow this one down, focus here, focus here, focus here. Once we started to do that, you could hear some of the engineers talking about how, like, this is not the right way to do it. We're going to leave all these holes and ex exploits. Yeah. But then when you looked at the data and you're like, well, but your SLA compliance is 83% now. We, you just you just covered 20% more of your environment with patches than you did two weeks ago. Right. So tell me it's not working again? Come on, guys. Um, I think that's a really key lesson in it. And I've seen some big, big successes with organizations that when they take that focused, prioritized, and quite frankly, personalized approach do what is right for your organization. 
even though it seems like you're doing less work per se, <laughs> you're actually going to be more effective at addressing the right kinds of problems. You're going to address the more critical issues. You're going to free up your people to actually rewrite the code or apply the fixes or whatever the case is. Okay. So instead of stagnation, you take action and you can actually get it done. Now, you still need to go back and fix the rest of those things, let's be fair. Okay. But just that step of switching from an all or nothing to a prioritized model, we you, we can easily see numbers when it comes to SLA compliance or coverage of risk or however you're doing your risk scores, like all the numbers start to move in the right direction. It's a very, very, very tangible and frankly easy to report uh, kind of improvement that seems counterintuitive, but it's it's the way we have to do it today. You, you just have to move into that place of accepting so, you'll never do it all. I really like your approach of taking that step back and tackling the t- tackling what you can tackle, right, with the appropriate resources, because I also think that it creates headroom for improvement. And it's always a great conversation in cybersecurity when you say how much we've gotten better versus when you try to boil the ocean and you always say why we always miss the mark. It's a much tougher conversation to have when you want to gather support from other business groups and leadership and things like that. So I think it kind of puts that on its head to where now you can have an advantage having those conversations. So I really, that was a great. Yeah. And I, and I think to your point, I mean, yes, because, because improvement is activity, right? right. And that's one of the things I think security teams for years, we've had this problem. So I like to say it is, look, if, if your security program was perfect, if we did everything right, all right, everything's patched, everything's hardened and configured properly, everything's perfect. Well, what happens? Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> yeah. No data breaches, no system outages, no email down. Display your purpose. Right? So <laughs> what are you going to do? You're going to go to the board and report a bunch of zeros? Yeah. Success for security is zeros like that's what we want and that's that's a miserable thing to have to report and explain to people is a good thing so if you're looking at measurement of improvement that could be such a powerful thing because instead of trying to say like hey we didn't have a data breach last month but instead you say things like listen the team was able to do you know we were able to reduce 28 percent of the open risk that was affecting our major website last month awesome job like we put new automation in place or one of the guys wrote us a great script, and so we're doing this cool, like, you know, give credit where credit's due. Mm-hmm. But those kinds of statements can be really powerful, even at the board level, right. when they say, like, oh, gosh, the team's getting stuff done. Or we're getting return for this investment. It's not just a bunch of nebulous security stuff right. that we don't understand. So I think it's a really, I think you've nailed that point. It's really, really important to track that improvement level, even if it's small, because it's a tangible way of showing work is happening. And that's, for business leaders, that's a big thing they want to see from a security right. team. Well, I appreciate your time. Oh, man, thank you for having me. The conversation has been fantastic. Um, and until next time. Yeah, appreciate it very much. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Out of the Woods podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. For more information or to connect with Cyborg Security, check us out online at www.cyborgsecurity.com and follow us on social media. We'll see you next time.